You're listening to episode 17 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the story of Doctor Strange. Sorry, Adam Strange and Doctor Occult. The Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and we're back to what passes for normalcy on this podcast, reviewing two stories, each with its own guest host. Later this episode, Michael Bradley will help me cover the origin of Dr. Occult. But before that, one of my favorite podcast hosts is back. I enjoyed talking to him so much that I couldn't go a week without him. Welcome back, Professor Allen. Good to be here again, Ryan. Appreciate it. How has your week been? I mean, it's been a week since we've spoken, right? Yes, it has been a week since we've spoken. My week has been very good, thank you. And you? Yes, the full seven days that has been since we last spoke. They've been so cold and lonely. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm sure if you think way, way back to that last time that we recorded, I'm sure I mentioned that Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. I mentioned that before, right? Does that sound familiar? Vaguely. I mean, so much time has passed. <laughs> Did I mention how much I like Adam Strange last time? Oh. Because I really that I like don't, that. That I don't remember. Tell I, me all about it. I really like Adam Strange. Uh, this is a guy who he falls into one of these categories for me where I fell in love with him at first sight purely based on the image of the character. If I never read a comic with this character, he would have a favored position in my life. I include Hawkman in that. Just I always loved Hawkman because of the look of the wings and the helmet. Ant-Man, again, because of that helmet and the gimmick, something about that design. And another one in that category is Adam Strange. The jetpack, the ray gun, the red suit with the cowl and the fin. It is so retro, so campy, but I love the crap out of it. Now, I grew to like Hawkman and Ant-Man more because I read better stories with them. Sure. Whereas Adam Strange... Mm, I haven't ever read that great <laughs> Adam Strange story. Yeah. Um, I've read some good ones, some decent ones, but they were written half a century ago. Before I started podcasting, when I first decided to create a fan blog, I had a long list of DC characters to choose from, and I kept whittling it down, mostly because other people were doing them, like 
I told um, Luke Giaconetti that if he hadn't been doing Being Carter Hall, I would have been mm-hmm. doing a Hawkman sure. blog and podcast a long time ago. I eventually chose Black Canary for my Flowers and Fishnets blog and podcast, but among the runners-up was Adam Strange. He was in my top five at the end. So what, what is your connection with this character, or how did you first become exposed to him? How did you, how did you meet Adam Strange? Yeah, growing up, I had an access to a bunch of those DC superstars mm-hmm. reprint comics from the mid to late 70s, and a bunch of those were branded DC superstars of space. And all of those featured an Adam Strange story or two. Yeah. So I may have owned, you know, some of those, or a lot of them were, I think, at my aunt and uncle's house, or some buddies, maybe. So it was these books and similar, you know, reprint type of titles that, you know, for me is where I found Adam Strange, and it was that '50s and '60s incarnation. I was reading them in the '70s, mm-hmm. but I was reading the stories from the '50s and '60s, and obviously, I wasn't making that connection at the time. But it was through those stories that I came uh, familiar with the Stranges. And for me, I love comics. I love science fiction. And for me, those are two great tastes that usually taste great together. <laughs> As we talked about last episode, a, a week ago, I think. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind sword and sorcery in my comic books. I don't mind sci-fi in my comic books. I, I, I'm more than willing to go beyond the standard superheroes. Uh, in terms of what I like in a comic book. Mm-hmm. We've kind of teased it. Let's look at this character's beginning. Adam Strange first appeared in a two-part story in Showcase issue 17, which had a cover date of November-December 1958. Strange was created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, the same team who would go on to create the Justice League of America about a year later. He appeared in three consecutive issues of Showcase, the same book that introduced the Silver Age versions of The Flash, Green Lantern, and The Atom, as well as the Challengers of the Unknown, the Sea Devils, the Metal Men, and the upcoming TV star Rip Hunter, Time Master. After his obligatory trial period in Showcase, Adam Strange took over the lead feature in Mystery in Space, starting with issue 53 in June of 1959. He would appear in the next 50 issues of Mystery in Space until issue 102 in September of 1965, the majority of them drawn by the legendary Carmine Infantino. Throughout the 70s, Adam Strange teamed up with other heroes in issues of The Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, and Justice League of America. In the early 80s, he had a 15-issue backup strip in Green Lantern. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, the character appeared sporadically in DC's occasional attempts to revive their non-Legion of Superheroes-based cosmic sci-fi properties. There were two Adam Strange miniseries, one in the 90s and one in the 2000s. Both series had great art, but only so-so stories. Strange was most recently introduced in the New 52 Justice League United, wherein he is now Canadian. So, you know, DC is clearly out of ideas for him. (laughs) professor did you have anything else to say about adam strange's publication history you know you mentioned those backups Mm -hmm. and that is probably in retrospect another place where i would have ran across those was that green lantern yeah the green lantern stories yeah yeah that would be another place where i ran across uh, adam strange as well because i was certainly collecting green lantern at that time so for me it was the mix of those 50s 60s reprints yeah from the 70s and then those stories as well yeah, I got a chunk of those issues a couple of years ago and found uh, some of the Adam Strange stories in there. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break to advertise some other podcasts you'd be better off listening to. When we come back, the origin of Adam Strange. Oh, 
Hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks versus the Smurfs? And of course, the Titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen? And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so hungry. I'm going to get weaker, and and, and and Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, uh, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the, out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, ah, 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 no! No! She, oh, I tap she, out! I tap out! You are a sick, out. sick man. Sir. I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might have to hit Google Image Search here. So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. Secret Origins issue 17 hit the shelves on May 12, 1987, despite its August cover date. Kevin Nolan provided the cover, which shows Adam Strange and Dr. Occult fighting some amorphous little monster creatures. What do you think of this cover, Professor? I think this cover is pretty great. You've got both of the characters are in the same plane, interacting with each other, interacting with these monsters, which look a little eerie. They could be spacey sorts of things. They could be horror, eerie, magic sorts of things. I love it. And you talk about two pretty iconic looks. Mm -hmm. Dr. Occult is, you know, the classic trench coat and fedora character. Mm -hmm. And Adam Strange is is his uh, spacesuit, you know, ray gun and jetpack look. 
all you need is Warlord on this cover, and you would have like the trifecta of classic pulp That's right. from the 40s and the 50s. Um, I, I agree. I love this cover. This is by far the best cover, I think, of the series so far. The only issue I have with it, I think the colors are really... Maybe they're muted or something. They don't pop. I yeah. I would rather have a black and white version of this cover mm. than the version that I do have. But it looks so good. Like This makes me regret that. Yeah, I think the only Kevin Nolan stuff that I've really read, he was the inker on. I don't really know enough yeah, about his pencils. But it's such a cool image. They look so good together. It, this could have been any sort. This could have been an issue of Brave and the Bold or DC Comics mm-hmm. Presents right. or any, right. any kind of team-up story. Um, they're not split into different halves of the picture. They are together. Right. They're in the same piece. And the monsters they're fighting could be from from the planet Ron or from some interdimensional portal. Exactly. It's it's oh, it's so good. But you are right. The Doctor Cult's color scheme is is a little on the muted side. Mm-hmm. But even Adam Strange's red is not quite as bright as it should be or could be. It's got little brown tones. And the monsters are all. And the, mm-hmm. I Again, mean, like, the, the they're sort of a phosphorescent green, but it's not popping. Right, and the, they're, the teeth, the inside of their mouths, they're mm, all the same color. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. And there's no background, which is fine. It doesn't need a background. Yeah, I, I don't think you always need a background. Yeah, I think I would like to see like a digital restoration color of this of this cover. Or, like I said, I would, I would love a black and white copy of this image. I would be just mm-hmm, as happy with that. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the actual story. Let's turn the cover. Let's turn to the front page. Are you ready to tell our listeners about the origin of Adam Strange? I am ready. Okay. This is based on the original story from Showcase 17 by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, as you mentioned. This version is adapted by Jerry the Extraordinary Conway with art by Carmine Infantino and Tony DiZaniga. We meet a man like any other, an archaeologist who once dreamed of a life of high adventure in a distant land, in another time. But he is realistic, but still a romantic. He is Adam Strange. Adam finds a legendary Incan city and knows he has just made history. But he's been spotted, and the Incans aren't happy that the interloper has found their treasures. He risks everything and makes a huge leap from one cliff to another. He hurls himself across space. Literally, because in a brilliant flare of light, a thunderclap sound, and he lands face-to-face with a dinosaur type of creature who is scooped up in a net by someone riding a strange flying machine, like something out of an old Buck Rogers serial. And then he meets Deja Thoris and realizes he is in Barsoom. No, wait, wait. That's John Carter, too. Wait a minute. Is, is there another comic you'd rather be talking about? <laughs> I just realized the connection when I was reading this one and realized, wow, it is similar to last week. And wow, they're both similar to John Carter. <laughs> you didn't realize that like, every story is an Edgar Rice Burroughs ripoff. Exactly, exactly. But of course, he has met Alana, for he is in the Alpha Centauri system on the planet Ran in the city of Ranagar. Alana is the daughter of super scientist Sardath, who gives Strange a super sci-fi helmet thing that serves as a universal translator. Sardath explains that he has been sending Zeta beams to Earth for communication purposes, as the planets are quite similar, 
But somehow those beams became transport beams, and hence Adam is now on Ram. We learned that in Iran's past, a thousand years ago, their scientific knowledge fell victims to a barbaric dark age. Sardath suggests his hot daughter gives the fit, virile newcomer a tour of Ram. <laughs> and Adam realizes how beautiful this world is and how beautiful Alana is. Oh yeah. But at that instant, in the upper reaches of Ram's atmosphere, a three-ship armada roars down from space. Invaders from another world have arrived. It turns out that Ran has a critical element that these aliens called the Eternals, which DC should have copyrighted, needs in order to maintain their eternal life. And if Ran doesn't provide this element, Vitatron, within an hour, they will destroy Ran and take the element. At this point, we learn of the scientists of Samarkand. They built a device to warp the fabric of space, and they've disappeared into another dimension, returning every 25 years, not to remain until Ran has outlawed war forever. The Eternals timed their visit perfectly, as within a few minutes, Samakand appears. The sights, the sounds, the smells. For Adam Strange, archaeologist, it is a waking dream. Alana and Adam update the scientists, who of course have the Vitatron. Adam realizes the scientists don't have weapons, but he does acquire the only spacecraft in the city, a small vessel we built to explore our new world, but it is unarmed. But that doesn't matter to Strange, who has an idea. It's a slim chance, but it might just work. They load the Vitatron onto the ship, and Adam and Alana blast off because, of course, it is a spaceship built for two. And the Eternals fire some sort of gravity sphere thing at them. But fortunately, Adam's archaeological training included, you know, lessons in piloting alien spacecraft. So he flies tighter and tighter circles and then snaps off. And the Eternals' own weapon gets fired back at their own ship. They destroy the weapon, but they are disoriented. The Strangers head back to Samarkand, and the Eternals follow. But that is the plan. Alana, whatever happens, I have no regrets. These last few hours with you, I've lived a lifetime of dreams. So have I, Adam. And then they get all smoochy face before bailing out of the ship with nothing but jetpacks. But the Eternals follow the ship all the way back to the city, and the plan works because the city disappears with the enemy warships inside. The Eternals have what they want, but they're trapped in another dimension forever, except that they reappear every 25 years. Minor technicality. As they discuss exactly how heroic Adam Strange, in fact, is, the Zeta Beam wears off, and he's back on Earth. But Earth is not his home anymore. And when the next Zeta Beam strikes, in an island in the Southern Hemisphere, he'll be there. And somehow, I know Alana will be waiting for me, too. But he lands back in a totally different location and is assumed to be a sorcerer from Renegar, and these barbarians capture him. Somehow he finds a rocket ship similar to the one from earlier in the issue, and in the wreckage he finds Alana and Sardath. They must have built this ship and flown it here to this world, which we learn as Anthoran, a neighboring planet, and due to some crazy science effect, they've all landed here together. 
and Adam finds a nice red flight suit and helmet. He comments that it's a bit tight, but at least it feels more comfortable under the circumstances than my clothes from Earth. He fixes the radio, and their distress call is answered. And even more aliens attack, and Adam puts on a space helmet and grabs a laser ray gun, and then decked out in full Adam Strange super suit, he meets the attack head on. Risking death, he has never felt so alive. Fighting to save the life of the woman he loves. And the lives of her people, whatever. He has found himself at last. And after defeating the enemy, he lands and gives Alana a hug and kiss just before the Zeta beam wears off. Too soon. The sensations fade. But the memory remains. And it will inspire him to return again and again and again to the world of Ran, where his destiny awaits. A destiny that is no longer a dream. The end. Thank you for that. Uh, your thoughts on the story? I think it's great. It is – and I learned a little after the fact in just doing a little bit of research. Mm-hmm. I – read a synopsis of the original Showcase 17, and it is exactly this story. (laughs) I did not look at that issue to see word for word, but the exact synopsis is this story. And boy, does this feel like a 1950s story. I mean, the old joke is what? This story should be a six-issue miniseries. Mm -hmm. There is so much happening compared to, say, I don't know, hypothetically last week, where literally nothing happened in the story. Yeah. This, again, it... there are so many times when this story should have ended. Right. It could have ended here. No, wait, it could have ended here. No, wait, it could have ended here. Well, the, It just kept going and going and going. Yeah, showcase the, the story was split into two. It was two stories. Like when he first leaves mm-hmm. Ron, that's the end of the first story. And, of course, it, they published the two stories in that issue. Um, so gotcha. this covers the entirety of that, that gotcha. story. That's the whole thing. And you're, it's, it's crowded. It's chunky. And I was curious about that. And when I looked at the creator credits, I saw, hmm, Roy Thomas edited this issue. This one was not edited by Robert Greenberger. I, he must have been fired over some of the decisions that he made in the last <laughs> issue with Warlord and Amazing Man. But no, this one was edited by Roy Thomas, written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Carmen Infantino. But it, it smacks of... Roy Thomas's style of what he did mm-hmm. with these secret origin stories. This looks and feels like he took Showcase Issue 17, gave it to Jerry Conway, and said, write the same story, just you know, use your words, because Conway was a better writer. <laughs> right. um, he's like, do the same thing, but different. And then gave the issue to Carmine Infantino and said, just draw this, but better. And even, because I've got the Showcase Presents Adam Strange, right. so I compared them. The art, like the panel construction, the panel layout is a little bit different, but the images inside are very similar. Like Infantino was approaching the book from almost the same eye and the same lens that Mike Sikowski was, um, which was interesting because Sikowski drew the Adam Strange stories in Showcase, but once it moved over to Mystery and Space, Carmine Infantino was the artist on Mm -hmm. it, and he drew most of those stories. They do give them credit here mm-hmm. in the Secret Origins yeah. issue. They do specifically say from the original story. That's what by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski had is is that the language that they used in prior issues when sort of doing the same. That was Roy Thomas's style. He, he said like this is based on the original story or it's adapted from the original story. 
in other non-comic book realms, you'd probably say it was copied or plagiarized, but <laughs> but comic comics, it's a weird medium. They recycle the same stories and the same plot beats, and they do cite their sources, but the, the Secret Origins was a weird one. Like, 90% of the material was produced by somebody else. It's just, Jerry Conway was like doing like a script doctor work on it. Right. Now, Conway and- is... The you know the dialogue the style the voice that he gives the characters is improved, um, and Conway was a great writer. He had an entire month celebrating him not too long ago. But in my line of work, as long as you give attribution, it's not plagiarism. Yeah, but you also wouldn't give full credit if a student <laughs> turned in a paper that was all like, yeah, this was previously published in you know Scientific Weekly or the New Yorker, and I just I, I quoted, it's like this this whole paper comes from this guy, and I'm putting my name adapted on it. by yeah. student from it's the like, original. Yeah, it's like okay, you're not going to be expelled from school for this, but I can't rightly give you an A, so. That's, yeah, that's that's the way this story was. So I, yeah, I I was surprised when I saw that. I was like, this is just like the other story, but it's not written by Roy Thomas. Oh, but it was edited by him. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The the very beginning, and I'm glad that you read the introduction. It begins with, "He is a man like any other." Okay, I understand that. An archaeologist, an what? explorer of ancient civilizations. What? Wait, wait, slow down, slow down. That's not like any other. That's that's not an everyman. That's a pretty <laughs> very specific. As Liam Neeson might say, it's a very specific set of skills. <laughs> so, um, even the the splash page on the beginning is an homage to the cover to Showcase mm-hmm. Seventeen. Mm-hmm. Did you have other thoughts on the story? Well, you know, I've talked about this before because other than Dr. Doom, Mm -hmm. I've probably talked more about Adam Strange than any character on the Quarterbin podcast. And in terms of Adam, specifically Adam and Alana, that is such a heartbreaking setup. Mm -hmm. You know, brief times with the love of your life when you're separated by, I don't know, 25 trillion light years or whatever it is. You know, that setup is not, quote unquote, four kids. But when I read these at whatever, 8, 11, 15, whatever it is, I understood how heartbreaking that setup is, You know how compelling in, emo- in, in an emotional sense mm-hmm. that just setup of the story is, that, that the premise is, what an inherent almost tragedy that is. And I, I never could have explained it you know, at that age, but I felt it. I was really deeply moved by that inherent heartache, mm-hmm. the inherent maturity, the romance of – just the premise of the Adam Strange character. And doomed by the nature of the Zeta beams and the, the mm-hmm. desire for a cliffhanger in serial, exactly. serial fiction, they never quite got to consummate their romance <laughs> because, oh, every time, oh, the damn Zeta beam, <laughs> why couldn't you come 15 minutes later? I could be quick. No! No! And eventually they did marry mm-hmm. and became one of the, again, in my brain, one of the great couples of the DC universe, although appearing very infrequently. Yeah, I got that issue of uh, Justice League of America out of. You'd be happy for that. Was it a quarter bin? Oh, it might have been 50 cents. I'll allow it. Okay. 
Well, but yeah, I got the issue with them with their their wedding day. It's mm-hmm. them with their backs to the league, saying in sort of a, a heart shape. It was a it was a fun story. It was it was a two part. It was the second part. But. You you mentioned that 1990 miniseries, mm-hmm. the Man of Two Worlds, and I covered those uh, on the quarter bin. Those those three issues, and there's a lot about it I don't like mm-hmm. in terms of they were in essence trying to 90s eyes. The setup, make it look darker, a little edgier, right, and, and all of that. And I did sort of tease that a little bit in the it, it, in the synopsis about you know Sardath encouraging <laughs> his daughter to spend some quality time with Adam, and it, it as it was retconned, and then later retconned out of existence. But for the purpose of that story, again, which is no longer well, nothing's in continuity from there now, but it was quickly discontinuityized mm-hmm. after the fact you know the he he specifically was trying to find someone to mate with Alana because turns out you know Rand was dying and all again mm-hmm. the darkness and, and 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 edginess and and he ends up becoming a little more mad scientist crazy scientist yeah you know with that edge which i didn't really appreciate but the you know the problem with Adam Strange in the modern times is that the fundamental look of the character mm-hmm. is so 1950s. It is by definition retro. I know, and it and it, I think it, legitimately it may be hard to produce new stories in 2014 unless you make them period pieces. Right. They've tried to update his look. They've done it because there was a mid 2000s series called Planet Heist. Um, that was written by Andy Diggle mm-hmm. with art by Pascal Ferry, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. Um, gorgeous art, um, and they redesigned the look to make it a little bit more, a little bit more aggressive. I would say he kind of had like a visor right. that covered his face. It looked more of like a utilitarian like space suit. Uh, very cool design, but for me, being a sort of purist, I like that classical look. It it right. is completely dated. It is campy. You. I don't know if you could get away with doing something like right. this in live action, like on a movie or a oh, TV yeah. show. But yeah. I wish they would try because oh, something like just uh, the, the fin on his cowl just makes me so happy. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, and 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 also the the Rand Thanagar War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was it was a pretty good series in mm-hmm. in the two thousands. And you know, I, th- I think if you could set up Adam Strange, you know, somewhat akin to a Green Lantern Corps, really just make mm-hmm. him part of the cosmic universe. Right. I do think tying him to Earth is a problem. Yeah. With the look, all of that retro baggage that he has, mm-hmm. again, might work in a retro story or in a strictly cosmic story or in a strictly RAN-based story that doesn't have to intersect with much of the DC universe. And the premise is something we have heard so many times before. As we joked about it, with him being right. transported to another world. It's John Carter. It's Warlord. It's it's a, a setup that we've heard so many times. I, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to sacrifice that, that crazy right. Zeta sure. Beam thing. But then you have to explain that. And it also, by its nature, keeps him, makes him the man of two worlds. That he keeps bouncing mm-hmm. back and forth. Because if he just goes to Ron and he stays there... You lose that premise. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I think in the New Frontier by Darwin Cook, 
Right. I think he kind of teased a slightly alternate take, which was, I think Adam Strange was actually locked up in Arkham Asylum, and that everybody <laughs> assumed he was crazy. Like, yeah, because it right. sounds ridiculous. He just said, yeah, I got beamed to another planet, but I'm back now. Um, and it happens to me every 60 days, because that's what the publishing schedule was for Mystery in Space. <laughs> but, so modified, the, yeah. so modified werewolf. Story. Right, exactly. So if you could do something like that where bringing him back to Earth somehow incapacitated him maybe, I don't know if that would help. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, like he's, he's an adventurous character. He was already an explorer and an archaeologist. Right. Like they took Indiana Jones and then gave him a jetpack and a laser gun. I can't believe – How awesome is that? How did George Lucas and Steven Spielberg not make this movie in 1985? <laughs> it's, How awesome should that be? It should be so great. It, it pains me that this doesn't translate to a more contemporary modern audience. Um, Absolutely. And I it's think, a shame. Yeah. One other little note that I had uh, towards the end of the story on page 21 when he goes to fight the giant blade ship <laughs> – Scythe thing, like literally, like the Grim Reaper's blade or the sort of Damocles ship hanging over. Uh, he puts on a space helmet, which has the sort of typical fifties like fishbowl look to it. Right. That idea is almost the same as the character Space Ranger, who mm, okay. also had a helmet and a jetpack and a ray gun and a yellow jumpsuit. And Space Ranger was the character appearing in Showcase right before Adam Strange took over. <laughs> <laughs> So they, they were definitely of a type. Hold, none of those DC sci-fi characters can hold a candle to Space Cabbie. <laughs> Did you say you work on the Space Cabbie blog or was it the Space Cabbie podcast? That's next. That'll come out. That'll, that's my goal for 2018. <laughs> yeah, but I loved reading these in the 70s, reading these mm-hmm. 50s and 60s stories. And again, those, those reprint titles had – Adam Strange was usually the lead character, mm-hmm. you know, the lead story, maybe one or two reprint stories. In there, and then it was five, six, seven pages of Space Cabbie or uh, the Atomic Knights. Yeah, you know those crazy sci-fi, straight, straight old. I keep saying it, fifties sci-fi mm-hmm. type of stories that you know dominated comics for a brief period of time. Yeah. Again, I've I've read some pretty good and some really fun Adam Strange stories. I've never read that great one. I wish I could find that great story, but right. I just I'm I'm always going to love this character simply because of the look and you know the, the jetpack. It's like the bacon of science fiction. It just makes everything better. <laughs> everything yeah, that's see, good can be improved with a jetpack or with bacon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, that look and and I'll say the relationship with Alana, mm-hmm. I think, are really. Things that you could build on. Right. And it's funny because she was an active character in the story. There are times when she is treated as the damsel in distress. There are times sure. when she's a love interest. But she's also out there with him. She's flying the ships. She's, she's fighting. She was a fun character. They, they played off each other very well. Yeah, she's just a great character, fun to read about. DC has Jeff Lemire brought them both back in Justice League United. And I think they did some interesting things with them. But it's... It's just not the same universe. But this is where our friends at Showcase Presents, the reprint collections, do come in handy. Yeah. And that is a great place to you know, find, these, uh, find these stories again. Yeah. 
I've got that. It's I, I highly recommend it. Um, his, I think all of his appearances in mystery and space have been recollected in the archive editions. He had three mm-hmm. archive editions. Right. Okay. Now those are way expensive for your budget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> See, if you allocate the 500 pages of the showcase <laughs> over the the cost, it comes pretty close to 25 cents. So I I can accept those uh, showcases. There you go. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts or ideas about Adam Strange? Just I wish there was more they could do with him today, or a version of him today. Mm-hmm. But I have I have somewhat resigned myself. Though I, I mentioned that on a podcast mm-hmm. uh, recently, and someone did you know try to you know buck me up with, well you know Squirrel Girl, she's making a comeback, or you know there was a point when so and so character was thought dead, and they've made a comeback. So don't give up hope yet. That I think maybe it's almost time to give a hope on Adam Strange. Sad to say. I wonder if he had joined, if he had been part of a team or an ensemble earlier. Because he, he showed mm-hmm. up a lot in Justice League. He was sort of like an honorary member from a, from their occasional team-ups. I mean, he did appear in Justice League 200. Maybe if he had been part of that or... You know, they seem to hang out with the... Uh, you know, with the Hawks on occasion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, somehow, again, make them the spacefaring married couples. Yeah, if there had been like a, a sort of like a cosmic group or team that had like Adam Strange, the Hawks, maybe Martian Manhunter, somebody else. Right. Sure, sure. Like something like that. Or, or even if there had just – if there had been a, an alternate version of Batman in The Outsiders, if he had really plucked mm. pre-existing characters that just mm-hmm. didn't belong in other places – but oh oh yeah actually that that reminded me another place where I really enjoyed him was the the weekly series fifty two, uh, Adam Strange had kind of a oh, fun right. a fun mm-hmm. side adventure it was him and Animal Man stranded halfway across the universe <laughs> with Starfire, and the play on that was that Starfire was played as a a fairly ditzy kind of of course mm-hmm. voluptuous and, and sexual playful girl on spring break. And the thing was, she was trapped with two happily married men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah. All right, well, I mean, uh, all I can keep saying about this guy is how much I, I like the look and how much I wish they could do more with them. So that'll, that'll get old after a while. So any last thoughts on Adam Strange? Nope. All right. Thank you very much for being on the show again, Professor. Where can people find you if they want to hear your thoughts? We are, uh, Emily and I are the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Find that in iTunes or at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com together. We do the show Shortbox Showcase. And on my own, I do the Quarterbin Podcast about books that I literally paid 25 cents or less for. And, you know, I think if, you know, 20 years ago, you had pulled my mom aside, my wife aside, and said, you know, one day, Alan is going to be known on the internet for liking cheap comic books. They would have said, what's the internet? And, of course, what else would he be known for other than being cheap? Let's just say it's not a surprise to the rest of my family that <laughs> I have found my niche. Uh, for fans of this episode in particular, I would recommend, humbly, Episodes 15, 18, and 21 of the Quarterbin Podcast, where I did cover that Man of Two Worlds miniseries uh, featuring Adam Strange. 
That'll be a great companion. I'll mention that, and I'll, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for this episode. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's been too long since we've had a chance to talk about this, so I was glad that you could come back and make the time in your busy, busy schedule. (laughs) Thank you once again for being part of the show. Thank you for your hospitality. Well, listeners, it's time for a quick promo break. Stick around for that, and then the origin of Dr. Occult. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. It's still going up! 325 manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. I got the magic in me. Every time I touch that track, it turns into gold. Everybody knows I got the magic in me. When I hit the floor, the girls come snapping. At me. Now everybody wants a breast of magic, 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 oh, I got the magic in me. I let Temple blow your mind. Pick a verse, any verse, I hypnotize you with every line. I'll need a volunteer, how about you, with the eyes? Come on down to the front, stay right here and don't be shy. I have you time traveling, have your mind We're back. My next guest is the host of the thankfully resurrected Superman and Batman podcast. He's also been called the nicest man in podcasting. Please welcome Mr. Michael Bradley. How are you, Michael? I'm all right. Who called me the nicest man in podcasting and what drugs were they taking when they did that? <laughs> that was actually Professor Allen, who was on oh, earlier oh, wow. this episode. I'm going to have uh, to send him more checks, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was I, he, I made him repeat it. But he definitely said you were the nicest man, and and then it got weird because I told him I thought that I was the nicest man in podcasting. Mm, and it was a real awkward situation, yeah. He got very quiet, and uh, <laughs> and that's why he's not going to be on the Alan Scott Creeper episode. So <sighs> that's the way that goes. Yeah. Anyway, folks, like I said at the top, Michael here hosts the Superman and Batman podcast. So who better to help me cover the secret origin of Dr. Occult? <laughs> Michael, what is your experience with this character, and how did you discover him? I kind of came into this character in a backwards fashion. Uh, My first exposure to him was an appearance he made in the Superman titles uh, shortly after the Reign of the Superman arc. 
And then after that, I learned that he was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who are the same guys that created Superman. And then I was kind of getting into more of their history and their life and their the works they had done other than Superman. And I tracked down as many of the Dr. Occult stories as I could from the Golden Age and read those. And I, I love those stories. They're super fun. And I haven't read a whole lot of the the vertigo appearances of the character, but mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy the Golden Age stories, and I enjoy whenever he shows up in a modern context when I, the stories that I have read. So, I think the first time I saw him or noticed him was in Swamp Thing, when Alan Moore was mm. writing Swamp Thing, and that, that classic story when John Constantine assembled all of these other weird mystics that I had never heard of at the time. Like, I had no idea who Sargon the Sorcerer was, or that Zatanna had a father who apparently was a big deal back in the day. And I just remembered Dr. Occult as being this guy who showed up, didn't say or do anything, but also didn't die or go insane like some of the other people in that group. So he kind of got through that event unscathed. That's kind of how he's treated a lot these days. If if there's a big gathering of magic characters, he's probably there and probably not going to do a whole lot. That's really kind of the big deal. Is he didn't leave much of an impression on me with that story. So I did look him up later and found out that he was called Dr. Occult Ghost Detective. <laughs> and I got to say, folks, if I could do it all again, I would go back and be a ghost detective. That's got to look good on a business card. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the publication history, uh, I'll throw some out for our listeners. And as always, if I forget or glaringly omit anything, I'm sure Michael will be there to uh, pick up my mistakes. Dr. Occult was created by writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Schuster, a creative team that obviously peaked with this character as they never created anybody else nearly as memorable. Occult debuted in New Fun Comics issue 6, which would have come out mid-September of 1935. The untitled story was Siegel and Schuster's first work for the publisher that would eventually become DC Comics. And as I mentioned way, way back in episode 1 of this podcast, Dr. Occult was the oldest existing character that DC had the rights to when they started publishing Secret Origins. And Roy's plan was to tell the Golden Age stories in chronological order. But they decided to tell Superman's origin first, and I don't think anybody in his right mind would blame them for that. Though it does beg the question why it took them more than a year for Roy to get around to telling the origins of Dr. Occult and Zatara the Magician. Anyway, new fun became more fun with issue 7, and Dr. Occult's adventures against supernatural threats such as vampires, werewolves, ghosts, and an evil sorcerer named Koth. Siegel and Schuster helmed all of the paranormal investigators' stories until his final Golden Age appearance in More Fun Comics issue 32 in May of 1938, at which point the creators moved on to nothing. They never did anything noteworthy besides Dr. Occult. Are you just, like, tearing your hair out over there in frustration? Yeah, it's all right. Okay. Everybody forgets about Funny Man, so... (laughs) It was nearly 50 years before DC brought the character back, and of course it was Roy Thomas who plucked Dr. Occult out of obscurity for use in half a dozen issues of All-Star Squadron. He also appeared in the last two issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and most fondly, as I said, as one of several classic mystic heroes assembled by John Constantine to stop the Bruharia in Swamp Thing 49 and 50. After the crisis, Dr. Occult would appear occasionally in titles like The Books of Magic, Books of Fate, The Trench Coat Brigade, and Day of Judgment, among other cameo appearances. 
Most recently, a cult appeared in the New 52 book Justice League Dark, albeit briefly, before he was killed. And that's what I've got for his publication history. Uh, did I forget anything major? No, I think that pretty much covers it. No. Like you said, he, he, has a, he has appeared in the New 52 long enough to be killed. So, <laughs> yeah. thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, as Michael pointed out to me just before we started recording, his first appearance was in uh, New Fun Comics number six, which was published according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics in September. Did we say September 13th? Yes, September 13th, 1935. And this episode will come out about a week after that in 2015. So here we have what is the 80th anniversary of this mm-hmm. character's creation? Yep. Not bad that we're still talking about this guy eight <laughs> decades later. Yep, you mentioned it uh, in your publication history, but he is the oldest DC Comics character still in use in their shared fictional universe, which is pretty much a, a milestone, I think, that a pretty high watermark that people don't really recognize. But So suck it, Slam Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Another Seagull Shooter creation. Yeah, yeah I know. All right, well, Michael, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Dr. Occult? I am very much ready. Uh, Credits for the story, we got Roy Thomas as the writer and creative editor, E. Nelson Bridwell as co-plotter, Howard Simpson as penciler, Bob Lewis inker, Augustine Ma's letterer, Carl Gafford colorist, Greg Weissman coordinating editor, and featuring characters created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Our story begins deep underground in the American Midwest, mere minutes before the beginning of the 20th century. A coven of Satanists fill a dank, torch-lit cavern with ominous chants as they prepare to sacrifice two young children, a boy and a girl. As the bells of a nearby church strike midnight, the demonic visage appears in the smoke. But the cultists are surprised to learn it isn't Satan that they've summoned, but the demon Koth who proceeds to slay the cultists in mass, absorbing their souls. Turning his attention then to the children, Koth is unable to find them, but thinks little of it, saying with the power he has absorbed, two more would be of little significance. Once the demon has gone, a figure known as Dator emerges from the shadows with the children, spiriting them away to the hidden citadel of the mystical group known as the Seven. There he pleads with the Seven to protect the children, saying he senses a great destiny within them. The seven initially are reluctant, but after more pleading from Zator and a testing of the children, reveals they do indeed have the innate abilities of true mystics, the seven agree Koth may take the children as pupils. But they issue a strong warning that should they be proven unworthy at any time during their training, they will be killed. As years pass, Zator trains the children, who he names Doc and Rose, in a variety of mystical abilities. As they reach maturity, they are given the fuller names of Dr. Occult and Rose Psychic and sent into the world to use their powers to battle evil. Arriving back in New York in the 1920s, Dr. Occult adopts the name of Richard Occult, and the two use the cover story of being the children of missionaries in order to attend school so Occult can officially earn the title of doctor while Rose studies humanities. Occult then sets up shop as a supernatural private investigator, with Rose acting as his silent partner and undercover assistant. Things are slow at first, with not many believing in the beings that they're fighting. But over time, the police become convinced that they have a mysterious set of allies, as Dr. Occult and Rose take on werewolves, spectral killers, vampires, zombies, and many more supernatural threats. 
Then one day, in late 1936, Zator returns, recruiting Dr. Occult to aid in the fight against Koth, who is seeking to overpower the Seven. The combined powers of Occult and Zator force Koth to flee, but the Seven know Koth must be finished once and for all. Filling him in on the background of Koth and his hatred for mankind, the Seven bestow upon Occult a costume, belt, and a sword. Using this mystic weaponry, Occult faces off against Koth and his army by using the belt to summon his own ghost army. The armies collide, and in the ensuing campaign, Koth realizes Occult is the key and attacks him directly. Koth gets the upper hand, demanding to know who Occult is. Occult reminds him of the night at the turn of the century, and the children he thought insignificant all those years ago. With Koth distracted, Occult summons the Seven, who use their combined powers to vanquish the demon, ending his war against humanity. The Seven thank Dr. Occult for his help, saying they now see him as an equal. Occult then returns home, rejoining Rose Psychic to continue their crusade against evil. And there's a bit of a somber addendum to this story. Um, Roy Thomas wrote the story with a co-plotting assist from Nelson Bridwell, who loved the Dr. Occult character, apparently. But Bridwell died in January of 1987, about four and a half months before this issue of Secret Origins hit the stands. This actually was his last credit, according to Mike's Amazing World, for a while. Uh, On the back inside cover of this issue, Dick Giordano devoted his regular Meanwhile column to a eulogy for E. Nelson Bridwell. He shares some very touching anecdotes, and it's obvious that the impact this guy had on DC in general, and Superman in particular, during the 70s and early 80s, was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to include a scan of Giordano's tribute on the WordPress page when this episode goes up. All right, Michael, your thoughts on the story of Dr. Occult here. This is a story that I've enjoyed more as time has gone on. Uh, To be honest, I feel like the backstory that Thomas and Bridwell developed is a lot darker than anything Jerry Siegel would have come up with. Mm -hmm. But I do really like it, and I I appreciate that it's one that is essentially timeless. Really, the only nitpick I'll have, and I'll get this out of the way, and then we can just spend the rest of the episode gushing, but the the sequence talking about how they enrolled in school so that Dr. Occult would actually be a doctor <laughs> seems kind of unnecessary. Well, here's my problem, and, and I did I, – I had the same problem, and I think it's it's a problem that Roy Thomas kind of manufactured for himself that then mm-hmm. created this issue because uh, – the Doctor Occult character in the Golden Age never had a real name. They never gave him right. a real origin, and they never gave him a name. So they tell the story that when these kids are infants and Zator is raising them, he names them Doc and Rosa, or Doc and Rose. Okay, Doc, he become Doctor Occult. Easy to remember him. And then when he goes into the world, when he leaves the Kingdom of the Seven, he has to assume a name, so he chooses Richard. And then he has to become a doctor. Well, you've now created two f- different first names that didn't previously exist for this character. Right. Why didn't you just have Zator call him Richard and Rose instead of Doc? That could have just solved the problem. And then, of course, he would go and become a doctor anyway, and you don't have this weird... Forced. <sighs> like, he felt he, he had to go to become a doctor so he could actually have the title. Right, right. Or, or earn the name. It reminds so me of his, um, So that his name wouldn't be a lie, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, the character in Catch-22 named Major mm-hmm. Major. When he enlisted in the army, <laughs> well, they had to promote him to Major because otherwise his name would sound silly. Mm-hmm. So. I will say it does kind of show them 
acclimating themselves to the world, which is good after living their entire lives in this, you know, secluded mm-hmm. mystical citadel. But I do kind of keep thinking of the Austin Powers scene where he says he didn't spend, you know, all those years in evil medical school to be called Mister. <laughs> but okay, going back to the beginning of this story, the title page here. I, I really love this mm-hmm. as a as a spotlight on this character. Um, I would say the art feels a little bit stiff, but it also feels very of the of the era that it's recapturing. It feels like a good Schuster type of character. The Golden Age, yeah. Um, and sorry, is the splash here by the same artist as the rest of the story? I think so. You think so? I mean, because there's not a special credit just for that, but it doesn't quite look like. The rest of the, I mean, it's it's similar, but but you're right. It does uh, really evoke that kind of golden age feel. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of like with the coloring and everything in the yellow. I, there's a little bit of a Dick Tracy vibe mm-hmm. in there with the the hat and everything. The the tentacles coming out of the side and the symbol of the seven. It's just the right touch. Even the font of Doctor Occult goes back to those classic stories, like the way <laughs> yeah. they used to be drawn in those more fun comics issues. Mm-hmm. I've always thought the way they do the the font there is a little cartoony for the character, but they are picking it up from the Golden Age stuff, yeah. so I, I appreciate it on that level. Yeah, I agree. It's not the one that I would have chosen, but it does look nice, and it's the way that Schuster probably drew mm-hmm. it when he was doing the originals. Getting into the story, you're right. The first half is probably darker than the original intent would have been. Uh, I I love this moment at the beginning where you've got this Satanist cult that is going to sacrifice these two children, and yet we see doubt and dissension amongst the ranks. Like yeah. you even have one of these Satanists just kind of going, "We're really going to kill these kids? That's <laughs> that's a little bit hardcore for us." Mm-hmm. It's like it's a kind of like a throwaway line. We don't need that moment, but it it kind of strangely humanizes these people who are yes. clearly evil doers. And then the ironic twist that Koff comes up and punishes them for just that fact. That they're not, they're not summoning the devil for, by sacrificing these kids. They summon a demon who punishes them for being willing to sacrifice kids. <laughs> it's a nice little uh, kind of spin on the yeah. kind of cliche uh, setup. The story does leave a little bit of confusion about the relationship between Dr. Occult and Rose Psychic. I never quite know if they were brother and sister, or they were lovers, or just boy and girl raised together, or what. It's I kind of like that they left it ambiguous. Yeah. Um, because in the original Golden Age stories, it's not really clear if they are, you know, uh, lovers or just coworkers. We're not coworkers, but like uh, very close colleagues, or if they have a romantic relationship. So I kind of like that. Thomas kept it ambiguous here because mm-hmm. yeah. he never I, I looked he never actually specifies that they're siblings yeah no I guess I guess that's just sort of my own bias of seeing the two kids together like that and mm-hmm. just assuming that sort of familial connection but yeah there is no indication that they had to be maybe just like their bond that they kind of stay together for their whole young adult and grown up lives right uh, I I I got the impression that Dr. Occult and Rose's powers were pretty vague and nebulous in the Golden Age stories. Like, they could kind of do whatever the story (laughs) needed them to do at a given time. Yeah. So I think page eight, that little montage, actually does a good job of delineating what their power sets are. 
um, mm-hmm. and kind of showing that yeah they can do all these things that they did in you know the 25 plus issues of of uh, new fun comics that they or more fun comics that they appeared in yeah and he's referencing specific things that they did then because there was one story where uh dr occult made himself look like a giant mm-hmm. and travel on the astral plane and stuff so he's he's kind of doing what Roy thomas, Roy thomas does and he he right. gets very uh into the nuances of things yeah of course there's no real explanation for why the boy seems to be stronger in no i was going to say stronger in the force but stronger <laughs> in uh, these sort of supernatural power sets it's just hey he was the hero it was it was yeah. written back in the 30s so she she was the secretary and sort of gal friday who occasionally it sounds like she occasionally like came out and like actually did some field work with him which is cool this story kind of splits the difference on what Roy Thomas has done with the other Secret Origin stories in that he, he had to create an origin for the character like he did with the Crimson Avenger. Yep. He's also retelling a Golden Age story mm-hmm. like he did with Superman and the Flash. So the, the back half of this is based off of the storyline that went from more fun 14 through 17. And it's a pretty faithful retelling, but it's, it's weird – that that becomes such a significant part of the character with this issue because that particular story is really a departure in those Golden Age yes. stories because the first few stories are very supernatural horror mm-hmm. for what that meant in the 1930s. And you know he's fighting vampires and cults and werewolves. And then you get to the cost storyline, which sends him into this alternate uh, – Astral plane, or I can't think what Jerry Siegel actually called it in those stories, but you know he's going along and it's kind of the same. But then he's given this costume and the sword and the the belt, and it's, it becomes like a sword and sandal fantasy story. Yeah, yeah, like more like even more like John Carter. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I thought of when I read Is that it, this ghost army on horseback. It's- yeah. So, you know, I I understand why. I mean, there's there's obvious Superman connections there, which is why a lot of people kind of highlight that story mm-hmm. and i understand why thomas played it up here because that story is really the only one of siegel's originals where we get any kind of inkling about uh, a backstory or a, a previous adventure for dr occult but it's just weird that that becomes such a big part of the character when it's not really indicative of the character's golden age stories i agree this feels like two different narratives mm-hmm. that tonally do not mesh well. I had the exact same note. I was really following along and really liking the story. And once they started, it's like, okay, they're fighting vampires, they're fighting, fighting werewolves. And all of a sudden we get thrown into this, like you said, like I, kind of an astral realm with this fantasy type of battle. And I get that he wanted to use the elements of Zator and the Seven and Koth because he planted those seeds in the origin story. So it was nice to revisit them. But this was an instance where I just I, – if you were going to start going back to those classic Dr. Occult stories, I think this was the wrong one to revisit or, yeah. just, or, or tweak it. Get rid of the costume. Make it – because this feels like a different character. Yes. Um, this feels like it, we've just abandoned what, everything that we knew about Dr. Occult, and he's, he's a completely separate character. And then at the end, he teleports back to Rose, and it feels like a different – it feels more like a superhero type of thing where he's just going to tell his, his girlfriend that, yeah, I've just been on some far-off adventure and it was pretty crazy, but I'm back. And they hug. And 
and it just kind of ends. Yeah, and I like both stories. I would like to read both stories. I just don't think they. I just don't think these stories belong together necessarily. Right. And ironically, obviously this isn't Roy Thomas's fault, but like right in the middle of this whole sequence with him fighting against Koth, we have an ad for Silverblade. I noticed that too. Which, <laughs> I've never read that that series, but he's got the very swashbuckling. You know, he's got the sword and the, the cape, and yeah, yeah, and it's coming like right at you. He's got the dark. Yeah. it looks like like I turned the page, and for a second I was like, wait, did, it, did the color just change? This, <laughs> like this, this looks like the character I was just reading about. What is what is happening to this character? But what did you think about the art in the story? I liked it. It felt kind of golden age ish, but through a modern lens, a which, mo- modern modern for nineteen eighty seven. Which, if that wasn't Howard Simpson's style already, I'm sure that's exactly what Roy Thomas was asking for, mm-hmm. and probably dictated. I looked up, and I think this was Howard Simpson's third published work for DC. Okay. Uh, he had previously done an issue of Green Lantern and an issue of Outsiders. Um, but I think Roy Thomas must have liked him because he went to work on Young All-Stars after this, and he came back to pencil two more issues of Secret Origins. Um, and Simpson was also set to draw two, or maybe he actually did pencil, two unpublished Secret Origins, um, one for Hawk Girl and one for Sandman and Sandy the Golden Boy. Hmm. That for various reasons just never saw the light of day. They were never published in this series. Were they ever published? Not to derail us, but were those ever published anywhere? I don't believe they ever have been. I've seen oh, art samples bad. of them, like, um, and the All Star Companion Volume Four. Roy Thomas talked about it. There was like five or six stories that were written and I think fully penciled and just put in a drawer somewhere and haven't haven't ever been released. Hmm. So, uh. I, I like the costume designs for some of these characters, like the Seven, um, these mystics. They're not just shrouded in hoods. They have their own little own little costumes beneath the hoods with their right. little symbols. They're really cool. I like the look of Zator. This is a world that I would really like to see played out. I would like to see more <laughs> development in this. And it just never got around to doing that, I guess. Right. So. Yeah, the, the ironic part about Dr. Arco getting the spotlight in this issue is that this was kind of the last hurrah for the character. After this, he was in an issue of Young All-Stars. Like, it was just a brief cameo in the annual. That's what mm-hmm. it was. And then he showed up in the Who's Who Update 88. And after that, it's post-crisis. They shunned him off to Vertigo Land, and, you know, he really never recovered. And recovered is the wrong word. Um, he, he just never really got any more use in this kind of superhero-y way yeah and i guess one of my one of the problems that i had with this story is the one thing that i wanted from this story i did not get and that was a sense of the character's personality Mm. i wanted something about this character that made him different than other supernatural or paranormal investigator type of characters or fighters I, i i wanted a little bit of that bronze age flavor to a character that, you know, give me something, a a spark. Because really, I mean, I could read this guy's adventure. You could replace Dr. Occult and his stories fighting vampires and ghosts and werewolves. You could replace him with any other character, and you're not changing a whole lot. Right. And this is why I, I think this character fails in comparison to a sea of other characters of this type that were probably inspired by him. Everybody from John Constantine 
to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, we see them in TV and other media and in comics fighting the same type of things that Dr. Occult fought. Mm -hmm. Well, what makes them special? What makes them more palatable to readers than this guy, than Dr. Occult? Well, he's so Golden Age stiff and... You know, Buffy is the spunky, precocious teenager who doesn't want to be in the situation that she's in. And John Constantine is the lovable asshole that you, you want to hate, but you, he's just got that, that sense of arrogance that just carries him through. So I, I was trying to think. I was like, would, would I want like a, a show or something like Dr. Occult? That would be cool. But then I thought, no, they've done that before. They've done that with other better characters. And some of them right. have failed and some of them have succeeded. And like, I, I don't know where the guy's place is in contemporary stories, be they comics or other media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would really need someone to kind of dig in and, and bring out the things that do make him unique. Which is difficult to do in this era, not only when he's just showing up in guest appearances, but you know when you don't really have time to kind of do that development, mm-hmm. when you have to be a success and come out swinging right out of the gate. So, but I guess like in terms of okay, if you've got a Batman story or Superman or Flash or anybody else, and you take them into this weird side adventure where there's a, a supernatural element. And you're bringing in a guest star that's going to help like, uh, guide them through this supernatural adventure. You could have Dr. Occult, or you could have the Phantom Stranger, or Constantine, or Dead Man, or the Demon, or – and I, I could rattle off all of the DC <laughs> supernatural characters. And I, I Blue th- Devil. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think I would probably choose any one of them over this guy just because that contrast – but I, I, I go back. I love the look and the idea of this character. He's just got that classic trench coat hat detective aura, and he kills vampires. <laughs> That's perfect. But he's he's Humphrey Bogart fighting vampires. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he needs a period setting. Maybe this guy needs to be in the 30s or 40s. Yeah. Yeah. If I were to see a Doctor Occult TV show or even a, a comic series. I would really like it to be in a period setting, a mm-hmm. 30s, late 30s, early 40s. He's the monster hunter, but instead of having like the weird like Van Helsing type of sort of neo-gothic idea, it's just it's this pulp noir element, mm-hmm. and I love that. But I, I think it I think he belongs in a certain era, and the lack of controversy about him maybe the lack of <laughs> something just doesn't make him. He just he just fades to the background. Yeah, and I think uh, if Alan Moore chose to just have this guy not do anything in those Swamp Thing, then then I think that's saying something because Alan Moore brought a little bit of character into Sargon even when he was dying, mm. and and I think he almost forgot that this guy was in the table. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to get into like the bigger picture stuff, but when uh, Neil Gaiman used him mm-hmm. in Books of Magic, he introduced this idea that Doctor Occult and Rose were kind of the same being or shared the same body. Yeah. Basically, they, they body swapped. Yeah. And I don't know if that was Neil Gaiman trying to, in, trying to inject some of that character and, and make him a more standout personality by doing that, or... I guess, but I, I don't know if that accomplished anything yeah. significant. It's interesting that sort of at will or because of the situation, he could have the male or female 
you know, part of this persona or this identity, but I think somebody else would have had to do something with that. Right. And I don't know that they ever did. It's it's adding an aspect to the character, but not really embellishing the character. Right. I'm trying to think if I had any other any other big notes for this character. I didn't really. I, I don't really. It's. I mean, it's, I like the story. I do too. It just didn't. It just didn't evoke a lot of comments from me. Which. Yeah. It did what it should have done. It actually. It's strange because not every issue of not every story in Secret Origins does that. This did make me want to read more about Doctor Occult. I mm-hmm. wanted to learn more about him and Rose. I wanted to learn more about Zator. I didn't care about the back half with this this fight against Koth. I wanted to read about them <laughs> hunting uh, monsters and vampires. Um, you wanted the, this page eleven with yeah. the montage. You yeah. wanted that, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to see that, and um, I would, I would love if they ever reprinted this guy's stories from from more fun comics. If there I was would a love collection of those black and white color, I don't care. I think actually most of them were black and white, um, if not all of them. But yeah, I, them. it was about half and half. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I would grab those up in in a second to read those because that's just I, I like that brand of horror and that genre. I did the math on that a while back. He appeared in 28 issues, and there were 14 stories because some, a lot of the stories ran multiple mm-hmm. issues. But they were short stories. They were like two to four pages, right? Yeah, and it was like a total of – all of his Golden Age stories were like a total of uh, – it was fewer than 80 pages. Okay. So DC could collect all those, throw some ads in, and have like a you know, just a thin 100-page trade paperback, put it out there for sale, and I think people would buy it. Yeah. Maybe I'm the only one, but <laughs> no, two. We we might be the only right. two. I would have also. Were there other notable, noteworthy Doctor Occult stories that you liked that you enjoyed? If if you had to recommend some adventures with this character to readers or listeners, well, I would recommend the Golden Age stories if you can find them. Uh, the Superman issue I mentioned at the top of the segment was Action Comics number six ninety two, and then that's followed up in Superman Annual number seven. And both of those are really enjoyable, and like I said, those were my earliest exposures to the character and having working side by side with Superman. So I, I really enjoy those. And what is that story, I, uh, off the top of my mind, I can't think of what story is that. What is um, he he shows up right after Superman returns, and the whole reign of the Superman thing yeah, is yeah, over yeah. with. And he kind of takes him through exactly what happened to him, uh, that he did die, and how he was brought back, and uh, how he came back to life, basically. Oh, cool. And then the Superman annual number seven is set very early. It was part of the year one annual mm-hmm. gimmick they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's set very early in Superman's career, and it's Superman's first encounter with uh, magic. So that's, that's an interesting story. That sounds really cool. I would like to look, I'll have to dig that out. And then there was a one shot in the mid 90s called Vertigo Visions Dr. Occult, which, because it's Vertigo, is a much darker, character, dark, darker take on the character, but that's gotten high marks. So, yeah. Other than that, unfortunately, there's just not a lot. Um, he he does get used a lot, but just not too often in his own solo stories. Right. He's always sort of a part of a group setting or yeah. something along those lines. Like, yeah, my my major recommendation would be uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing, Volume 4 by Alan mm-hmm. Moore, which has the American Gothic story like culminating. In, and he only appears in two issues, and they're not it's not a substantive appearance, really. But other than that, you know, listeners, if you can find the Books of Magic, um, there's a Neil Gaiman four-issue series with Doctor Occult, the Phantom Stranger. Who else is in there? Mister E. Mister E. And who's the fourth one? 
there's a fourth one, and they're all training. They're all they're all training Timothy Hunter in this new kind of world of magic. Who is the Constantine? Th- Constantine, <laughs> of course. <laughs> the biggest of the four characters, and we forgot about him. Of course. Uh, and somewhere, Emily Milton is pulling her hair out, screaming. <sighs> did you ever watch the show, Constantine? I didn't. Yeah. No. I probably should have just to support the comic shows, but I watched the first two episodes and it just didn't draw me. Mm. And I've made this argument with other people and I've talked about this before. That show needed to come out 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. If it did, it would have been a huge success. Yeah. But it's, this is another one of those cases where the character of Constantine in the comics back in the nineties was so groundbreaking and so revolutionary at that time. The problem is, in the 20 years since then, everybody else has caught up. And we have seen that character type. The jerk British guy who knows more than you, and that's the only reason why you don't punch him in the face, because you absolutely need him. But we see that in Sherlock, we see that in The House, we see that in tons of these shows. So by the time they got around to that Constantine show, it's like, this character isn't new. I've seen him on a dozen other TV shows. And the Monster of the Week, the magic thing, that's also not new. We see that all over the place. So it was all the things that made the story and the character special 20 years ago just don't make the characters not special anymore, which I would level that same complaint to Dr. Occult here in this story. It's like the things that made him great in the 30s and 40s. Don't translate well to 2015. Because everybody else has done it since then, and and most of them have done it better because it's been a more sophisticated era of storytelling. But anyway, that's really all I've got for Dr. Occult. Did you have any final thoughts on the character? Nope. I think I have said my piece. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Michael Bradley... Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you and your thoughts on comics or superheroes or other obscure creations of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster? Well, I host a podcast called Superman and Batman where I talk about Batman and Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's most obscure character, Superman. And you can find that at greatcrypton.com. That comes out um, – we're going to say monthly because that's kind of the schedule I'm on right now. I'm hoping to get more regular uh, after the first of the year, but right now it's monthly. And I also co-host a show with Sean Engel called Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. And that comes out every two weeks, and we are actually starting to wrap that show up. We've been covering the uh, Tangent Universe books from DC Comics, and we are nearing the end of the road on that. But all the back episodes are still online, so if you aren't listening, you can get caught up just in time for the grand finale. And then one other thing I would plug, and honestly this hasn't been updated in a couple years because I just ran out of time to, to work on it, but for a while I was doing a site called Siegel & Schuster Mythmakers. Um, where I was talking about the various things that they had done in their uh, working careers and uh, trying to shine a spotlight on some of the the lesser-known things. There are a few things on there about Dr. Occult, not too much, because like I said, I just ran out of time to really develop that site like I wanted. But the site's still online, and you can find that at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster. Sean Engel is he's wrapping up just one of the guys and Parallel Lines. Mm-hmm. What is he going to do with his free time? <laughs> I have asked him that multiple times, and he doesn't seem to have an answer. So he's got to be starting a new probably show. probably focus on real life again. <laughs> <laughs> the hell you say? Or, or reading more comics? I, I don't know which. 
All right. Well, Michael, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins Thanks podcast. for letting me come on. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome news, Secret Admirers. Amazing, incredible news. Back on episode 10, the Phantom Stranger episode, I was talking to Rob Kelly about this t-shirt I had back in the early to mid-90s. I described it as having stock images of Batman, Robin, The Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman on the front, and Green Lantern, Aquaman, Plastic Man, Hawkman, and Green Arrow on the back. But I could not find a picture of the shirt to prove its existence. Months passed. I started to question my memory, even my sanity, as I'm sure many of you questioned me as well. But alas, lo these many weeks, I am vindicated. I am validated. The shirt is real, and I have photographic documentation. Al Gerding, who appeared last episode on the Hourman Origin and who goes by the name Van Z on Facebook, found pictures of this shirt on the Megomania Facebook page, posted by a member named Ron Papa. The shirt is real. You can see it on the Secret Origins Facebook page. I will also post it on the WordPress site for this episode. And while you're looking at the pictures, and flagellating yourself for doubting me... I'd like some help in identifying the artists of the ten characters pictured on the shirt. I remembered it as being all Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, stock art. But that Robin sure looks like a George Perez from the Style Guide. And the Hawkman looks Joe Kubert-esque. He's got that leanness. But I could be wrong. If you can identify the artists who provided the characters, let us know. And big thanks one more time to Al slash Vanzi, who came up huge twice last weekend. Okay, on to the feedback from episode 16. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, James Wilde, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Sin, and Trekker Talk. Facebook likes, mentions, and shares came from Butch Rosenbaum, Chris Ivey, Clinton Robson, David Sopko, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Harlan Freilicker, Igor Glushkin, James Bolt, Jason O'Logan, Jim Romalde, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, The Lantern Cast, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, Mick Foley, Mike Peacock, Richard Field, Rob Kelly, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Trekker Talk, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. Lots of comments over on Facebook. Several people were asking why Mike Grell didn't do the Warlord story. One person really wanted to hear more from Rob Kelly. Wait, oh, that was Rob Kelly. Uh, Ruth Sutherland and a couple of other people recommended ignoring this Warlord origin and diving right into the series like Professor Allen recommended. Gregor Rougeau said, in the grand tradition of Roy Thomas's read upcoming issues of Young All-Stars and Infinity Incorporated tendencies, it appears Danny Maddox does appear in Warlord issues 127 through 131, a mere eight months after this issue came out. Zeb Oswalt said, I kind of wish they had done an origin story with Morgan's daughter, since she came from regular Earth and became a powerful mage in the comic. And he also said he thinks Warlord started with red hair before it quickly turned white. He said Travis Morgan's son was a ginger. I talked about how this episode was so much shorter than the other recent shows, despite having three different origins. Gore Tolton said, Do you find yourself dragging after around 60 minutes? Maybe take a pill. Get the Hour Man joke? Hilarious. Uh, 
Clinton Robinson said, Every time I look at this cover, I think Amazing Man is either the bastard clone of Our Man or Warlord, or a crazy Dragon Ball Z-style fusion of them. Oh goodness, how pop culture has either enhanced or ruined my brain. That's only a few of the comments. Overall, there was a lot of love for last episode over on the Facebook page. Please keep it up. I love your comments and interactions. Great stuff. Uh, Moving on to the WordPress comments. These aren't going to take as long because most of the comments section is actually a running conversation between Professor Alan Middleton and Jeff Nettleton about the phonetic similarities in their names and their historic similarities in their experiences with Warlord, John Sable, and the work of Mike Grell in general. Uh, Part of Jeff's comment says, I loved Warlord from the moment I laid eyes on it. Swords, big guns, winged helmets, chicks with little clothing, dinosaurs, swashbuckling adventure, great stuff. However, Warlord was never very good outside of Grell's hands, and this issue proves it. This really isn't much of an origin since it doesn't really focus on the actual character, just a character created for a later story. I won't even get into the technical errors, and there are many, which wouldn't have come out of Grell's pen. He was actually in the Air Force in Vietnam. The whole point of Warlord is adventure, and this story comes across as a weak techno-thriller. That's actually a good way of putting it. Uh, It's definitely a product of the 80s. Hunt for Red October was the hottest book of that era, in that genre. I love that book, and that movie. Jeff says, Point of order, though, it's Burroughs' Pellucidar stories that Grill is swiping, not John Carter. That would make Travis Morgan David Innes, though he does act more like John Carter. Mike Grell did rip off everyone under the sun in Warlord. Burroughs, Moorcock, Tolkien, a bit of Lieber, some Hal Foster, some Robert E. Howard, but he grew beyond that and developed into a pretty darn good writer. This was also the book where he went from being a Neil Adams clone into Mike Grell. He just got better and better from here, with Star Slayer, John Sable, and the Longbow Hunters. That's a great point. I've seen a lot of Grell stuff from the 70s where it's very DC house style. While I admit to not reading Warlord or John Sable, I can easily see that the artist of the Longbow Hunters is a different man with his own style. And Jeff continued, I liked Michael Fleischer on Spectre and Jonah Hex, but this wasn't really his wheelhouse, and his Warlord stuff wasn't that memorable. Adam Kubert's art is fine, though it feels more like his father's war comics than the Viking Prince or Tor, which are far closer in tone to Grell's Warlord. Okay, but I think that's because this was written more like a war comic than something like the Viking Prince. Michael Chiaroscuro said he just started getting into Warlord through a website called Diversions of the Groovy Kind, which has scans of his first appearances. He also said he's seen a lot of the back issues bundled together at his local comic store. He goes on, Warlord is a character I've been interested in since my childhood when I would see the book on the stands or in back issue bins and wonder, is this worth my allowance or should I stick with the superhero stuff I'm more comfortable with? Well, as per usual, I chose superheroes which is weird because I've always enjoyed sword and sorcery tales in literature and comics, and even read and loved Marvel's Conan series. But for some reason or other, I passed on Travis Morgan, the Ollie Queen lookalike. Speaking of, I need to read that issue of Grell's Green Arrow run where Morgan and Queen meet. Uh, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, It's always a treat to hear Professor Allen. The man brings a scholarly class to any podcast he graces. That's what they used to say about the irredeemable shag. And then he opened his mouth. 
Chris says what many people were saying, Warlord was one of those books on my radar that I never read. I had a few of the action figures by Remco, but never Travis Morgan himself, because I couldn't find him. So when I bought this Secret Origins for the Hour Man story, I was hoping to get a good feel for the series. Not so much. Not sure who thought this was a good tale for this comic. Maybe a backup in a Warlord annual, but not here. Perfect opportunity to create a primer for new Warlord readers blown. Pretty art, though. I hate to say this, given I may lose my Power Records gig, but I never read Mazing Man either. I do have issue 12 for the Miller cover. See, Rob? It did work, but that's it. I thought it looked fun, but I wasn't looking for fun comics at that time. And Chris says, If you guys want to read those excellent Gardner Fox, Murphy Anderson, Dr. Fate, Our Man team-ups from Showcase, they are reprinted in the Crisis on Multiple Earths, the team-ups trade paperbacks. I hope Kyle Benning covers those stories in his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast. Speaking of which, Kyle didn't leave a comment on this episode, but I know he was moving into a new house recently, so I'll let it slide. Also, since, you know, he's going to be on the next episode. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, My first encounter with Our Man was in the Whatever Happened To story in DC Comics Presents. Later, I saw him in All-Star Squadron. Remember, kids, just say no. That meant the inevitable addiction issue would come up. Of course, this is why I had a hard time showing my kids the classic underdog cartoons with his secret energy pill hidden in his ring. Can you imagine this character today with all the concern about performance-enhancing drugs and doping? Honestly, I really can't the more that I think about it. Like, if Our Man was created in 2015, I can't see it coming out of the big two. It would have to be some sort of parody or a dark deconstruction-style comic like Irredeemable or Superior. Mark Millar or Mark Wade would come up with the Our Man for Boom or Image or some other smaller publisher. That's really the only way I see this premise getting off the ground. Uh, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl voiced the dissenting opinion against Mike Grell's art and said there are actual parties where people pose for pictures with their legs spread really wide to mock the way Grell drew the Legion of Superheroes. What the hell kind of parties is Martin Gray attending and how can I get an invitation? He goes on, Our man I always found dull beyond belief in the few guest shots I saw. It was only when he began appearing in the Androids book that he became interesting. As for his son, Rick Tyler was just a boring nobody. You know, I completely forgot about the android version of Our Man when Van Zee and I talked about the character. Martin Gray did love Amazing Man and wishes the whole issue had gone to him. Finally, we got a comment from the Irredeemable Shag, who you've probably heard on recent episodes of Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. He said, Reading all the Warlord-related Who's Who entries recently convinced me to give it a try. I've been slowly building my Warlord collection over the past year, and have read the first ten issues or so. Wow, what a fun and adventurous comic. Lots of action, hot women, and fun storytelling. If you love comics from the 1980s, then these early issues are definitely worth your time. Many are one and done, so just pick up any early issue and give it a try. Shag also left a link where you can hear Professor Allen talk about Warlord issue 50 on the Flame and Puddle podcast. He also welcomed Van Z to the wonderful world of podcasting. On to the Our Man section, Shag said, You wondered why Daredevil appeared? Just speculation, but perhaps Roy Thomas suggested to the artist include Daredevil, but was thinking of the Golden Age two-tone Daredevil rather than Matt Murdock. Perhaps the artist misinterpreted. 
that would be the character now known, I believe, as the Death-Defying Devil, who Dynamite currently holds the license for, I'm pretty sure. He did at least a couple of years ago. Uh, you guys mentioned Time Point in JSA, but there was no mention of its origin. That originally appeared in the outstanding Our Man ongoing series from 1999, written by Tom Payer. Only lasted 25 issues. This was the robotic character that spun out of the terrible DC 1 million crossover. This was the surprise sleeper of DC at that time. It wasn't selling big numbers, but it was so good. If I recall, Mark Wade used to walk around conventions putting copies in people's hands because he believed in the book so much. You can probably find the back issues cheap, so I highly recommend you give it a read. Our Man Legacy Represent. Then Shag said, I believe there may have been a problem with your audio software or MP3 for whatever reason. Between Warlord and Our Man, there was a bunch of warbly annoying sounds that lasted about 10 minutes. Might want to check the file. No, that was just Shag's co-host Rob Kelly talking for all of seven minutes about Amazing Man. Shag probably didn't recognize the sound because he hadn't recorded with Rob in ages until this past week when they finally recorded a new Fire and Water episode together. Check that out. That's going to be all for this episode, folks. I want to thank my two guests, Professor Allen... Definitely check out his shows at the Relatively Geeky Network. If you want to hear his coverage of the three-issue Adam Strange miniseries, that's in Quarterbin episodes 15, 18, and 21. He and his daughter Emily also recently started a new show called Dorkness to Light, where they look at comics and other geek culture venues that explore questions of faith, theology, spirituality, and religion. That can sometimes be a touchy subject for some listeners, but their approach is very much academic and philosophical. They're not preaching their religion. Don't expect them to try to convert you through their analysis of Daredevil's Catholicism. It's a good show that asks a lot of interesting questions. I recommend it, as well as Professor Allen's Quarterbin and Shortbox Showcase podcasts. Check them all out. And my other guest, Michael Bradley, you can find him on the Superman and Batman podcast. And he recently sent me a gift after we recorded this session. It's Showcase Presents The World's Finest Volume 1. Some wonderful Superman and Batman stories in there. I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to all my listeners. Hope you had a great time hearing us talk Adam Strange and Dr. Cult. Oh, and hey, before I forget to mention... Next episode, which will be Secret Origins Episode 18, will not cover Secret Origins Issue 18. It will, in fact, cover Secret Origins Annual Number 1, which was published between Issues 17 and 18. So if you want to read ahead for next time, check out Secret Origins Annual Number 1, starring the Doom Patrol and Captain Comet. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man